right, so let us count our days. Let us be mindful of what the future holds for us and hold this world and the things that it contains lightly. Father, I would ask for Ferdine that she is in Zimbabwe, that you would allow her and her team to bear much fruit, that the words that they say and the, the contacts that they make would be uh, to enlarge your kingdom, that it would be for the furtherance of the gospel. And Father, she's, she's getting older as well, so we ask that you'd give her stamina and strength as she starts early and she works long hours, but she wants to do it for your glory because she loves it. So we ask, Father, that you allow her to prosper in whatever she puts her hand to do. And we just thank you that Larry Shea is, is recovering from surgery, and we ask that this surgery with his eye would be successful, and that he'd be able to be at home as he is, cared for, and that he would heal rightly as, as he's, we're asking that he would uh, heal rightly, he could see well, whatever the problem was, it would be gone. We also pray for Jenny and Fred as they're a long way away, and they've asked for prayer, and it seems like a minor thing to, to, to repair brakes, they're a very common item, but they want to be able to get back on the road by tomorrow, so we ask that you would grant them this, that you would continue to give them traveling mercies, and as you have already, to break down 12 miles away from a cousin is, is pretty incredible. So we're just grateful that you have provided for them in this way. Give them leisure and relaxation. We also ask that you give them safety as they continue on. Father, Father, as we continue to look at the Beatitudes, may we get a sense of just the richness of this sermon that you have given to us and we can grasp what it is for our life today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you'd open up your Bibles, we're going <clears> to <throat> be looking at another one of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, and, and in, in all honesty, folks, the, the thing that I've resolved that I want to do with, with these Beatitudes is I'm probably going to start giving you smaller chunks. Nobody needs to listen to me talk for 45 minutes. I don't even want to listen to me talk for 45 minutes, although I could. I could, but that's not the point. So... I'm going to, I gave you an outline of probably more than what I'm going to cover today. I've already cut it down once because I figured we don't have to <clears throat> give you the whole load of hay all at once. I can give it to you in, in bite-sized pieces. <clears throat> so that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. The, the first beatitude that we talked about is blessed are the poor in spirit. And this is, this is a goal. It's not an ideal. It's a goal out there that we should strive for, and the striving of this poor in spirit is the opposite of self-sufficiency and pride. That is, so you, when you say you're poor in spirit, you have no pride within you. You come humbly, in Philippians 2, 2 and 3 is, hits right on the point. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. Now, those words can roll off our lips pretty easy, but to put others first many times is a conscious decision because, frankly, I'd like to kick you to the curb and go first. That's our nature, but we don't want to say that because that sounds really bad. But when it comes to something that we want, oftentimes we'll kind of maneuver that we want to go first. So the, the beatitude of being poor in spirit is to come humbly to our Savior knowing that everything that we have is from him. Last week I began talking about the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. And I talked about four areas that you can, that this mourning can be expressed. One is lamenting the losses in your life, whether that be health or relationships or someone in your, your immediate family or of, uh, area of influence has died. So that is one area where you would mourn. A second one would be the evils of this world, whether it be the abortion industry or crime or just turn on the TV and you'd be able to see all the stuff that's going on in the world. Another one is to be sorrowful for the condition of others, meaning you have a heart for the lost. That's what we see with Fredine. She has a heart for the lost, and I don't fault you or anybody else, you or me, it's how you're wired. And it talks about the, the body of Christ being the hands and feet of Christ. And, and Rose, she may be a hand, and Sally may be feet. And, and we, we go all the way through, and we can talk about different people. They have a different role. So it isn't that I'm saying, well, you guys need to go to Zimbabwe, and you need to convert people for, to, to Christ. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is identify what your strength is, and then pour yourself into that. And if we all do that, all the bases will get covered in the church. So you don't have to have everybody do one thing or do another. What is your natural wiring? Today, we're going to continue to expand that. Blessed are those who mourn. And we're going to be talking about sin in your life and in my life. So we can, you can refer to the, the outline in your bulletin. And I'm going to be kind of going through that. I want to be reading the passage that I'm going to be linking with the beatitude. Okay? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the passage in, in 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 7. So I'm going to start about verse, uh, oh, not, the latter part of 9. The latter part of 9, it reads, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and, leads, and leaves no regret. But godly, I'm sorry, but worldly sorrow brings death. We got two things. We got worldly sorrow. We got godly sorrow. I, I can honestly tell you, in all of my life, in ministry, or even as a kid, I've never heard a sermon on this. It has to do with repentance. So you have different aspects of repentance. You have godly sorrow for sin. You have worldly sorrow for sin. How do we know the difference? How do we know? Well, that's what this message is going to be about. And I suspect there's going to be a lot more here than what I'm going to be able to, to cover in this particular message. But I do want, I'm linking last week's sermon a little bit with this one. Is repentance talked about in Scripture? All over the place. We, we talked last week about John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, Paul. We talked about repentance in the Old Testament. We talked about repentance in the New Testament. It's all over the place. So now I'm going to expand on that. And the first one I want to talk about is worldly sorrow. What is worldly sorrow that leads to death? The first one is sin is quickly minimized. Or 
you could say sin is watered down. It's just minimized or it's watered down. Here's an example of, of sin that is watered down or minimized. Is in, and I'm not talking about necessarily is, is I washed one of Sal's blouses and I ruined it. Okay, that isn't necessarily a sin. It's a mistake. But you say, listen, okay, I won't do it again. You say, oh, you're minimizing sin. No, let's say I committed adultery. Or let's say I, I did something that, that I, I was caught stealing or something that, you know, it's got a little bit more of a ripple effect. And I, and I go, okay, 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 I was caught. Okay, I'm sorry. Can we just get on with it? You had an affair with another woman and you just want to minimize it. Say, all right, all right, I got it. I did wrong. I won't do it again. Okay, now, can we drop it? That's minimizing sin. That's watering down sin. That's wanting to move along from sin. Let's just let's get on with it, okay? Can't we just get by this? And I've, I have had that in counseling so many times. They go, look, look, look at other people. They've done it too. I mean, I'm not the only one that has done this. Other people have done it as well. So let's just get on with it. I mean, come on. Why are you making such a big deal about this? That's minimizing sin. That is worldly sorrow that leads to death. Say, hey, okay, it was a mistake. Nobody's perfect. I mean, come on, nobody's perfect. Those are all true, but it minimizes sin. So worldly sorrow that leads to death, one of the elements is it minimizes sin. It waters down sin. It tries to get by sin just as fast as we can. The second one is, People wallow in their sin. That's another way of having worldly sorrow that leads to death. Is Make no mistake, people. Wallowing in your sin has an element of pride. I have had people, and they say, oh, you wouldn't believe what I did. I did this, and, and when I was a kid, I took drugs, and I had an abortion, and I committed affairs. And it says, well, you know, God can forgive me. Oh, God can't forgive me. Oh, so you have great pride that your sin of such a magnitude that not even God can forgive them. And then they go on, and I call it the rant, say, oh, I'm just trying to forgive myself. Guess what, folks? There's no biblical passage on forgiving yourself. I cannot tell you how weary I get of people saying, oh, I just can't move on because I can't forgive myself. And nobody's asking you to. You don't forgive yourself. God forgives your sin. And when you want to wallow in your sin, you grab onto it and you carry it with you and it's like a mark of, well, hey, you had a sordid past, but look at mine. Mine's even worse. Mine's probably worse than all of yours. So there's an element of pride in this, but they don't want to let it go. They want to take it like luggage with them wherever they go. Worldly sorrow that leads to death. It minimizes sin. It has people wallow in their sin. And worldly sorrow is a person works to get rid of it. There's someone who is self-reliant. I'll work this thing off. I will stop doing whatever I did. I'm going to repay the debt. This is called penance. And it's, penance is far, far more than just saying this many Hail Marys or paying this much money to someone. It, penance is an attitude of the heart. And I can give you a lot of examples of that. It's 
penance is, I'm going to work this thing off. I broke the relationship with Sal and I, and I'm going to fix it. Okay, I'm going I'm to do this thing. I'm going I'm to pay for it in some way. A definition of working to get rid of sin is it's a religious attitude. It's a religious attitude prompting one to attempt to pay for their sin through good works and suffering. Because I'll, I'll pay. I'll pay, but I only pay so much. Okay? I'm not going to keep on paying, but I've got to pay a little to show that I am serious. When working off sin, you got to hear this, when working off sin, God and his word are not present. They are not present. Usually there's an aversion to it. They don't want the Holy Spirit convicting them of sin. Penance tries to replace the sacrifice of Christ with their own deeds. You see the difference? For a person with worldly sorrow, the best you can get is jumping through hoops. What I have to do to make this right. Worldly sorrow will actively attempt to go to using medication. Hear me, I'm not opposed to medication, but I am opposed to medication if it is to cover up the effects of sin. That takes, that's a subjective statement, and it, it is not easily nailed down. But there are people that just drug themselves instead of repenting of what they have done wrong. They use meds, alcohol, or here's a big one. This is good in our community. Busyness. I need to stay busy. I need to work hard and just be about work. And it is worldly sorrow that leads to death by being busy. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm just going to work really hard. The key to true repentance is focus on Christ and not on self. So, what is godly sorrow that leads to life? Well, first one is, sin is an offense to a holy and righteous God. Sin is an offense to a holy and righteous God. Anything less than this is behavioralism, is legalism. I need to do this, and then I need to do this, and I need to do this, and Christ is really out of the equation. It's going through the motions, but nothing has really changed. That is why I read the Psalm 51 passage with David accepting his sin. He, he saw sin as a holy, as an offense to a holy and righteous God. And as I said, 20 times in Psalm 51, he talks about his sin, his offense to God, his heart needing to be made right. And he accepted it. There was no qualification there. True repentance. True repentance realizes sin is not a mistake. It's not a problem. It's not a boo-boo. It's not a minor thing. It isn't a slip-up. It is an offense to a holy and righteous God. The, this, this is a, some phrases that I've heard in my studies that I thought were absolutely just encapsulized. It says, I have fallen because of my iniquity, 
or my sin. I have not just stumbled, I've fallen. And we like to say, well, you know, it was just a little trip up. No, no. When we sin, we don't just stumble, we fall. Now, I, wanna, I want you to think of a sponge. I could have a sponge up here, and I thought about bringing it up here, but I didn't want to make it all wet up here. So if you have a sponge, and you take that sponge, and it has ink in it, and you squeeze that sponge, the ink comes out. The ink is our tendency to sin. Okay? So you, so you and I are a sponge, and the pressures of life, which is the squeezing, you're squeezing, the pressures of life come, and you go, well, the pressures of life are causing me to sin. No. The pressures of life, that squeezing of the sponge, reveals what is already inside of you. The Gospels tell us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when there, there is ink in all of us to some degree. And when the pressures of life come, it starts to squeeze. And you go, well, pastor, if I didn't have these pressures in life, I wouldn't have that ink problem. Yeah, you would. It's still in there. It's in all of us. It's to whatever degree it is in there. <clears throat> Another one. Godly sorrow. It always results in a changed life. Always results in a changed life. Godly sorrow always bears the fruit of repentance. Open confession of sin, no more holding or covering of sin. It is the, a changed life that, sh that shows it is authentic. This includes an intention to live a God-centered life. It is a desire and a commitment to glorify God with our lips and with our lives. And I have asked many, many counselees, and I think I may have shared it in here in the past, so you guys should have no problem with this, is I've asked Christians, I said, it's not a trick question, what is, what is the goal of life? What is the goal of our life? And I've got a whole array of answers, just a whole array. But the, the goal of our life is very simple. It is to glorify God in all things. 1 Corinthians has a passage. 2 Corinthians has a passage. For the 1 Corinthians passage is 10.31. The 2 Corinthians passage is 5.9. That is the goal of our life, is to glorify God. And true repentance does just that. The next one. Godly sorrow always results in freedom from guilt. Always. It is a zeal to do what God wants. It is hatred for sin and a desire to do, whatever, to do what is right, whatever it takes. In Acts 26, Paul is talking about, I'm just going to give you a little part of the verse that is appropriate. They should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And there are things that are appropriate to repentance, and there are things that are inappropriate to repentance. So, here's true repentance or godly sorrow. It is a change of mind. It is a change of will. It is a change of affections, actions, and behavior. When you have true repentance the whole person is changed. The whole person. So, 
I'm going to go on and I'm going to talk about some myths of repentance. And there is a lot of myths of repentance. The first one it is not that one. Where'd it go? I don't have that one. It's not there. So I'll tell them to you since I, I have them right here. Sorrow equals repentance. That is a myth of repentance. Sorrow equals repentance. There are people that have supposedly repented because they were overwhelmed with their sin. And maybe they've wept over their sin and they were just lamenting. And I'm going to give you some, some, some names that we know and I'm going to give you some names of biblical people that we know that have done just this. They had great sorrow. And I'm going to be reading a bunch of Bible passages because it magnifies and focuses in on just what I said. Sorrow equals repentance. It's not true. If you had a, a, a famous evangelist, Jimmy Swaggart. Okay, Jimmy Swaggart. He was on TV and he was sobbing for what he had done. He'd been with a prostitute and he was on TV and he was so sorrowful. Trouble is he got caught twice. You kind of go. That's sorrow for sin, but that does not necessarily mean it's equation. We have had our 42nd president on TV crying about the sins that he did. I'm not so sure that was repentance. That was sorrow, all right, but I'm not sure it was repentance. And I'm not going to make a judgment call on that. I'm just saying, mm hmm, I'm not convinced yet. But I can give you something that I am convinced on. Esau. Esau, we talk about in... In Hebrews, it says this, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Hmm. Sorrow equals repentance. Not in this case. It also says in Hebrews, very clearly, a very convicting statement. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemy's of God. Here's another biblical example of sorrow equaling repentance was Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. And after he had betrayed Jesus, he went to the leaders and he says, I have sinned by betraying the blood of an innocent man. And the leader says, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. And what did Judas do? He directly went out and hung himself. It doesn't show that he repented. And virtually all academic scholars believe he did not repent. There was sorrow for sin, but there wasn't repentance for sin. We'll take some more. We have Ahab in 1 Kings 21. In 1 Kings 21, <clears throat> it says this. I thought it was very instructive. 
Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. And he was all upset because he couldn't get Naboth's vineyard. And so what, what happened is Jezebel, his wife, set up a phony trial. They had two scoundrels that, that went on, uh, that laid leveled charges against Naboth. And they took Naboth out and they stoned him. And, Je and Jezebel went in. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. So Ahab did. He went over and he took the, the uh, vineyard. And then the word came to uh, Elijah to go down and confront Ahab, and he did. And Elijah said, or Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. This is pretty bad. All his descendants. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord said, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. And in past messages that I've given you, dogs were nasty. And they were like the lowest form of life, and to have royalty be eaten by dogs was an incredible curse. That was, that was just, even today, you'd go, you'd never want a corpse be eaten by dogs. I mean, that's just, that's just wrong. There has never been a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before him. Here we go. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, a sign of sorrow. He put on sackcloth, a sign of repentance, and he fasted. He lay in sackcloth and he went about meekly. That's our next beatitude. Uh, to give you a preview, meekly or meek, means strength under control. It doesn't mean he didn't, have, he didn't have power. It means he put the power on the shelf. He had access to it, but he didn't want to grab it. It's the same phrase that's used of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ presented himself as meek, although he had 70 legions of angels at his disposal. It was power under control. Okay, it's like having a draft horse that is gentle. It's got a ton of power there. It could raise havoc if it wanted to, but it's, it wants to be gentle and kind, even though it has a reservoir of power that is immense. So, sackcloth, he put on sackcloth, tore his clothes, and he fasted. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his, his day, but I will bring it on the house, his house in the days of his son. So it still came. But if you fast forward, 
Was Ahab a righteous man when he died? Shoot. Elijah came out and said, don't go to this battle. You're going to get killed. And he threw the, he threw the uh, prophet that said that in prison because it was the Lord's will to deceive Ahab. And remember, he disguised himself, and he went into battle, and an arrow was shot randomly. It went in between the creases of the armor, and he died, just like the prophet had said. But we see here that he had sorrow for sin. But it was worldly sorrow for sin, because he didn't like the consequences that were coming down the line. We have another one, Jeroboam. Jeroboam, not a nice person. It says this in 1 Kings 13. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel. As Jeroboam was standing by the altar, he made an offering. He, he's standing by the altar. It's like he was in church making an offering, okay? He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. Oh, altar, altar. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David, and on you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. So the prophet came and he said, this altar, Jeroboam, that you're standing next to, it's going to be defiled. They're going to be burning humans on this, and that means the altar is useless from then on. So Jeroboam heard this. The same day the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart, and the ashes on it will be poured out. Okay, well, Jeroboam heard this, and he didn't like it. Then King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, and he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! meaning to Elijah. But the hand he stretched out towards the man shriveled up, and he could not pull it back. Okay, got the picture? Also, the altar was split apart, and his ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Then the king, that'd be Jeroboam, what do you think he said? Oop, oop, this is bad. Then the king said to the man of God, intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. And then they go on. And from that day on, Jeroboam was a rat. He never changed. He wanted his hand restored. There was sorrow, but it wasn't sorrow to repentance. It was sorrow because he had lost something and he wanted it back. And in a relationship, you can have that, that relationship with husband and wife is damaged or destroyed, and you want it back. Or your relationship with your son or daughter, and you want it back. Or with your parents, or take your pick with, some, with your employer, and you want it back. You just want things the way they were. It isn't necessarily that you're repenting. You have sorrow for sin. But that doesn't equate that it's sorrow that is repentance. That's one of the myths <clears throat> what you oftentimes see, well, in fact, when, if you think that sorrow equals repentance, you many times see a momentary softening of the heart. We must distinguish between two things, sorrow for being caught versus deep inward hatred of sin. 
sorrow for being caught? Or do you have an inner hatred of sin? So how do we know? We're doing this whole message on, on repentance, whether it's authentic or whether it's phony. Tears provided by godly sorrow always, if it's authentic, always lead to a transformed life. Always. If you have godly sorrow and no transformed life, my guess is it's not authentic. The second one, the myths of repentance. Self-preservation is repentance. Self-preservation is repentance. Many have been caught in sin and they try to lessen its consequences by repentance-like behavior. Others have been found in dangerous or frightening situations and move towards repentance through fear or self-preservation. Uh, I have not been in the military, but many that have, and I think TV glorifies it, but there are foxhole conversions. Lord, if you get me out of this, I will do A, B, C, and D. I can tell you on a host of occasions when I have had people, they have, let's say they weren't even under arrest, they got into an accident, they hurt themselves, they hurt someone else, they, they killed someone, maybe they were under arrest for drunk driving or a host of things, and they're in the back seat. And let me tell you, there is sorrow for sin. Now, whether it's genuine or not, we will see. Is their life transformed? Have they changed? I have had more promises in the back seat of my patrol car than you can possibly imagine. They will promise everything and anything if we just get the consequences removed. They, they, they will do whatever. Just let me have the consequences removed. It isn't necessarily repentance. It's self-preservation. Just, just let the car not be damaged. Just let this person not be hurt. Just have somebody tell my wife or my husband that I really messed up and I won't do it again. Self-preservation. There are deathbed promises. They will attend church. I'll read the Bible. I will pray. I will do whatever. But I just don't want to die. Heavy drinkers get into an accident and they promise they'll never drink again. The miracles of Jesus, they caused a lot of fear, but certainly not everyone repented. There was fear. So you, you take, for example, the healing of the demoniac. The healing of the demoniac. I found that to be a very interesting story. Remember, the, and Sal and I, when we were in, in Israel, we were in that particular area. And if you're looking at Galilee, it's on the right side at about 2 or 3 o'clock. That's where the, the area of the Gerizines is. And what, what happened is there was a whole herd of pigs, right? And when Jesus came onto the scene, he, said, he told the, the demons, says, come out, of, come out of this man, you evil spirit. And, they, and then the, the discussion was had, it says, what's your name? He says, my name is Legion, because we are many. And they pleaded with Jesus not to go out into what is called the desert places. It, appear, it appears, I'm going out on a little theological limb here, it appears that demons prefer to occupy something as opposed to roaming with no occupation of a body, whether a person or an animal. It appears. Because they pleaded with Jesus 
not to cast them out, but please send us into the pigs. So Jesus said, yeah, go ahead, you can go into the pigs, and then we know they rushed over the cliff, and they all, they all drowned, and the, the um, geograph geography of Sea of Galilee has changed then. They figure it was much higher, and it extended further up into the hills, which would have been possible back then. Now the, the, the level of the lake is much reduced. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. When the man was healed, remember Jesus had the legions cast out. The man was sitting in his right mind. It says when they came to Jesus, the, the people in the city, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Self-preservation equals repentance. It goes on, those who have, been, who have seen told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and, be, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Think about that. A miracle has just occurred. The difficulty is that would have been an economic hit for the city. Pigs were unclean. Why would any Jew have a herd of pigs? Because they were being disobedient. That's why. And the legion went into the pigs. The pigs ran off the cliff. They all drowned. It would be like a whole herd of cattle dropping dead for some reason around here. Say, woo, that was a financial hit for somebody. They were worth X many dollars a piece, and there's a thousand pigs. And so somebody took a big economic hit. And in result, it wasn't repentance. It was self-preservation. Jesus Please leave our area. They're asking the Son of God to leave. I mean, it's amazing to me that they would do that after seeing the miracle right in front of their eyes. So self-preservation is not necessarily repentance. I have had people, and I'm going to close with this. I have had people that have, um, I say, are you a believer? Well, yeah, I, I believe in God. Have you not heard that? I believe in God. And I try not to be rude, and that is harder than you think, just so you know. Try not to be rude, but I says, well, that puts you right on par with the demons. Because the, the, the demons, in James 2.19, says, you believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So you say, well, yeah, I believe in God. Good. That puts you right on par with the demons, because they even believe in God but it doesn't go any further than that. So you have self-preservation. It's oftentimes seen as repentance. King Agrippa said to Paul, Paul is witnessing to him in Acts 26, he says, Paul says to him, he says, do you believe these things, Agrippa? And Agrippa goes, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian? And he didn't. And you know what, folks? Very few people who postpone repentance ever do. You know, I cannot tell you how many people, whether I've performed a wedding for them or a funeral or somehow I've gotten in their life for some, some reason, and they say, you, you go to which church, whether it's this church or some other church that I was attending, he says, you know, one day you might be surprised. I'll just show up at your door and I'll attend. I go, in my head, I go, no, you won't. No, you won't. That sounds really good, you know. One day I'm going to start reading my Bible, and I'm going to, I'm going to do a Bible study, and I'm going to really get serious about this. And I go, it's possible, but it's highly improbable. 
because delayed repentance rarely has it come about. It does, but not very often. Every so often. So, I don't know how this fits in your life. I don't know if this hits the bullseye on where you live, but I do know this. The human heart will do just about anything to avoid having a hatred for sin and embracing that what I did was wrong and it was an offense to a holy and righteous God. That I do know. It's the same with me. Is I, will, I will weasel words out of it that somehow it wasn't fully my responsibility. And when I, when I go to couples, and I've said this to you before, but to me it encapsulates what we're talking about, is do we take sin as seriously as Jesus Christ takes sin? Because he, he died on the cross for sin. He paid a huge price because he took sin very, very seriously. And that's what we need to do as well. So we're going to close there. And I'm going to pick up next week and we're going to continue on with, with more of what uh, the Bible has to offer about repentance. And the, as the title said, am I stuck or can I really change? Yeah, you can. You can change. So I'm going to pray. Worship team, come on up here as we close. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We ask that we would apply these things, that we would develop a holy hatred for sin, that we, we would want to avoid it, not because it makes us look good, not because we would be a better Christian or we become more sanctified or more like Christ, but, but because it glorifies you, it honors you, it's being obedient to you. And Father, it is all about you. It's not about us. So we thank you for the forgiveness that we can have through your son, Jesus Christ, how you provided a way of escape so that we can be saved, that we can become more like the Savior from day to day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's rise. Trust and obey.